Kevin Love is a basketball player in the NBA. He's actually uh, an all-star center uh, slash power forward for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, he actually grew up in the Portland area down in um, Lake Oswego. And he wrote a column uh, a few years back in a uh, magazine uh, about kind of stress and sports and performance. And it was entitled, Everything's Go Everyone is Going Through Something. Uh, and for him, this was about experiencing a panic attack in the middle of an NBA game. And he says, growing up, you figure out really quickly how a boy is supposed to act. You learn what it takes to be a man, be strong, don't talk about your feelings, get through it on your own. So for 29 years, I thought about mental health as someone else's problem. Sure, I knew on some level that some people benefited from asking for help or opening up to others. I just never thought it was for me. To me, this was in the short time I've been meeting with a therapist, I've seen the power of saying things out loud in a setting like that. It's terrifying and awkward and hard. And I know you don't get rid of problems just by talking about them, but I've learned that over time, maybe you can better understand them and make them more manageable. Look, I'm not saying everyone should go see a therapist necessarily. The biggest lesson for me since November wasn't about therapy. It was about confronting the fact that I needed help. Everyone is going through something that we can't see. I think it's easy to assume that we know ourselves, but once you peel back the layers, it's amazing how much more there is still to discover. Jeremiah, as Donna read, and is, is one of the most famous parts of Jeremiah or snippets, is that the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? There's so much about our inner life that we don't have full access to, that we don't fully comprehend. Why does public speaking, for example, create this or stimulate this fight or flight response in our physiology? Why does a relational conflict make us anxious, make our palms a little bit sweaty or clammy? Why do we walk into a performance review as if we're walking in front of a firing squad? Why does our body respond to these types of stimuli as if we came upon a bear in the woods or we narrowly avoided a car wreck? It's the same physiological response in those circumstances as we experience in what are very ordinary everyday life experiences. The thing is, is that our brain has attached meaning to these events, such as public speaking, relational conflict, performance review. Our brain attaches meaning to these events that makes them feel like and makes our body respond as if they are life and death experiences. The outcome of these events threatens our orientation in the world. It threatens our financial or mental health, maybe even our overall happiness. And these types of events can even unravel our core conceptions about who we are 
who God is. Core conceptions that maybe we didn't know that we had. And this is why when people list the greatest fears that they have, death comes in second to things like public speaking. We're more afraid of standing up and giving a speech or as Jerry Seinfeld talks about, where we would rather be the person that is in the casket rather than giving the eulogy. It's easy to assume, isn't it, that we know ourselves. But once you peel back the layers, it's amazing how much there is still to discover, Kevin Love tells us. We are extraordinarily complex creatures. And so much of what makes us us lies under the hood. And so much of it is inaccessible to us without extraordinary effort, without the help of others, and without what the Bible would say is the intervention of God himself. Otherwise, Jeremiah says that we are drawing strength from mere flesh, and that when we can't or we refuse to reach outside of ourselves, we are stuck. We are cursed. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, Jeremiah says, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Kevin Love was not only an NBA player, which is a dream for so many young boys growing up. He had reached that dream, but he was beyond that an NBA all-star. He was making millions of dollars per year, but he was falling apart inside partly because he had attached himself to an idea of manhood that is built upon the idea of self-sufficiency, on not needing help. So in the past, whenever anyone had mentioned therapy to him, he rejected it as a form of weakness. Jeremiah says in verse 6 that they will not see prosperity when it comes. That is those whose hearts are deceived, those who have turned from God. They will not see prosperity when it comes. Kevin Love trusted in an idea that kept him from being open to a path of prosperity because that path was through weakness. It was through vulnerability. It was through admitting a need of assistance. But panic attacks, as some of you know, as I know very intimately, tend to make you feel desperate, especially when the ability to do your job rests upon not having panic attacks. So as with most people experiencing some kind of anxiety disorder, he went to therapy hoping that he could learn to overcome panic. But the therapist saw that the real problem wasn't really the panic attacks. Those were merely symptomatic. They revealed a way of thinking about manhood, about career, about self-understanding, about strength that kept Kevin Love immobilized. Therapy would be limited to developing coping strategies unless they were able to uncover the beliefs, the attachments, the fundamental ideas about the self that made life for him more difficult 
and very problematic given his profession. In other words, the therapists and Kevin Love needed to talk about what Jeremiah identifies as the heart. Those fundamental commitments, those fundamental loves, those fundamental imaginations, the things that really drive our will that we aren't even fully aware of and don't fully understand. Those things that answer, why did I just do that? Why do I keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome? Why can't I stop this behavior even though I know it's bad for me? This is the language of addiction, right? An addict has given themselves so thoroughly to something that they reject any version of life that doesn't include that substance. And this is the deceitful heart that Jeremiah talks about. He doesn't mean that all of us are evil and rotten to the core, that we're all many Stalins. If we just are given the right opportunity, that we would be full of murder and malice to everyone. That's not what Jeremiah is saying, and that's not what the Bible, I think, says about humanity in general. But what Jeremiah is saying is that our hearts are not 100% evil, but our hearts are divided, that our hearts are full of conflicted and conflicting loyalties. We have and we live from this constellation of beliefs about the self and about the world and about God that gives us bearing in the world. And these beliefs become, therefore, indispensable. They must be protected, guarded, strengthened, and they cause panic if they are threatened. Maybe it's not substance addiction. Maybe it's not panic attacks for you. Maybe it's a commitment to a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. It could be things like diet or exercise or eating that you're making choices for better health, for a better environment, for caring more fully for the welfare of animals and the world. But maybe we become wrapped up in our ideas about these things and about our commitments, not just as positive choices, but as systems of identity, systems of meaning. And we become dependent upon these choices and what they say about us as meaning makers. And therefore, maybe we don't panic, but maybe we get a little edgy. Maybe we get a little cranky if someone challenges them, if someone steps on our commitments, even by accident, we can become irate because these people aren't judging our choices. They're judging us. They're just judging how we go about our way, make our way in the world, at least so it seems. We see this at work in our community loyalties. We love those inside our ideological bunker, those who think like us, and we hate those outside. Or maybe we don't hate them, but we feel like they're a little bit less fully human and fully realized than we are. Even the existence of people thinking differently can be seen 
as a threat. And so what do we do to compensate instead of going to therapy, instead of seeking the rescue of God, instead of doing that diligent, hard heart work? We watch talking heads on TV that make our tribe's arguments over and over so that we get that dopamine response, just like a junkie getting a fix. When someone agrees with us, we feel better about our world, better about ourselves, better about our conception of God. Entire religious institutions are built this way. A system of doctrine, a system of religious rules, a system of interpreting the Bible becomes, they become stand-ins for God himself. And inside of these systems, these institutions, our pathology, our heart's deceit is a challenge, but it is baptized with the authority of God himself. And so therefore, if you challenge the system, if you challenge an interpretation, you are not just incorrect or you have a different opinion, but you are challenging God and you must be opposed, if not excluded altogether. A political party, a cause, an athletic team, a church, things benign or even good in the abstract can become what Jeremiah calls a bush in the wasteland, dwelling in parched land. It is not a bush that is alive with the presence of God, but it is a dried out husk. What does it feel like to bump up against a dead, dry bush? Maybe you've experienced that when you're gardening outside and you swipe across a bush that is no longer alive and it can leave scars or scratches or marks. These bushes are sharp, they're prickly, they're painful. And people can be bushes like this. You bump up against them in the wrong way and you're going to get hurt. And we're talking about people, talking about them, people like that. It's difficult to bump into people that haven't done the hard heart work that they need to. But Jeremiah, you see, doesn't say their heart. He doesn't externalize this, but he says the heart, the heart that every one of us has. That is our heart. At some level, we are sort of strangers to ourselves. There's a sense, isn't there, that there is a truer, a deeper me that I don't have fully access, that I don't fully have access to, that's hidden under layers of community or parental conditioning, as well as layers of self-protection. We don't fully understand our own heart. And so we're, we're moving through life, never really sure that we have a compass that's rightly calibrated for the world that we actually inhabit. And so we're constantly grasping. We're constantly on the search for something, for someone to tell us who we are. For people, for things, for experiences behind which we can hide our fragile selves and never have to do the work of unearthing the real us, even though at some level 
That's part of our quest. That's part of our search is to discover who we really are. But living out of that reality is so terrifying. So we search for something, someone to tell us who we are. People, things, experiences to hide our fragile selves behind. And when things don't go according to plan, we panic, we get nervous, we get mean, we get angry, we drink, we stomp our feet, we overeat, maybe we cut ourselves just to feel alive and to feel like we have a connection to the real world. A wise person who understands that deceitfulness lies at the very center of our being in our hearts is able to go through life asking and expecting answers for questions like, why do I do the things I do? They are able to ask these questions and hope that they can find an answer to ask with curiosity and openness. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I continue to harm myself and harm others? Why does it feel like I'm chasing things that I don't really want? A wise person is also able to say to someone else who is wise, I feel divided. I feel pulled in, in directions that seem opposed to one another. Can you help me? Or can you at least listen? Can you at least be empathetic? To say to someone else, a friend, a pastor, a therapist, a community group, there are things in life that I believe that I have ceded my personhood to. And I need the intervention of God to find myself again and to finally be made whole, to be made new from the outside. Friends, everyone's going through something and that everyone includes you. Everyone here on this call, including myself, we are all going through something because everyone's heart is broken. Everyone's heart has been broken many times. Everyone's heart is sick. And if we trust our own intuition, if we trust in humanity itself, if we look to our flesh for strength, we will continue to be fragmented, disintegrated, pulled in conflicting directions by very different visions of life, ever in pursuit and never arriving. There is another way to live, but it requires humility. It requires courage. It requires not seeing the need for help as weakness. It requires asking, as we did in confession, for the intervention of God, to have our hearts reoriented to his vision for life, that he would renew, that he would recalibrate us. Jesus would call this being born again, being converted to live by faith in a new world order that he is ushering in, in his life and death and resurrection. This invitation 
begins in many words throughout the Old Testament, in many images, and in many statements such as we find in verse 14, heal me and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. We have to be willing to admit the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but it is in ourselves. Why did, why did God choose to reveal himself in Israel, in this hot, dry corner of the world, with very little vegetation, with some hills and some valleys and some beauty, but it's not the south of France. Why did God not choose to reveal himself in Nice or on a Greek island or in Hawaii? Why doesn't God reveal himself in our happy place, in the place where we feel the greatest amount of comfort? Couldn't we explore the deceitfulness of the heart in one of these places? Well, maybe. And surely we all know that experiencing comfort is also exploring a facet of God's care for us. And these times should not be overlooked. But the thing about Israel is that it's hot and that it's dry. The whole setting is almost a metaphor for need, for thirst, for being utterly dependent upon God for life, especially in an agrarian society. The Bible was written, God's revelation was heard and written down in places of thirst. Thirst shows up 40 times in the Old Testament. Dry shows up 70 times. Rain, 90 times. Desert, 180 times. And water, 500 times in the Hebrew Bible. And in this story, God's people spend most of it enslaved, in exile, walking around the wilderness. They spend it in places of utter dependence. And this isn't so God can look down upon his people and say, ha, let's see you get out of this one. But instead, he sees his people thirsty, needy, hungry, and he sends his son, Jesus, who says that he is at the headwaters of the story. He is the living water that all of these experiences of thirst and of dryness were pointing to. Why should you trust anyone but yourself? Why should you ask for help? Because Jesus came going through the desert going through the wilderness, going through his own hunger and thirst and poverty and exile and utter, the utter desolation of the cross in order to get to you so that we can say, even if I don't make this shot, even if I don't get this job, even if my worst fears about this job review at work come true, even if I lose the approval of this person, this community, because of Jesus, I know that I am still loved. I still have a home. And maybe home 
in its final analysis, not a place, but it's a condition of irrevocable, revocable belonging because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can say no matter what, I still belong. And I can not only acknowledge my own deceitfulness with courage, but I can address my need for healing with hope. I can ask for rescue from the God who offers salvation in the sacrifice of Jesus, his only son. Let's pray. Father, we are deeply thankful for the person of your son, Jesus, that he came and he lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we could not die. Father, we thank you that he, that you make provision for our salvation, for our rescue, for our deceitful heart in the person of Jesus. Father, I pray that his life would become more real to us in our lives, that his death would become more real to us as we continue through this Lenten journey, as we consider death, not only Jesus's, but our own. And Father, I pray that you would give us an active trust in you, that you would give us the courage to open ourselves up to not only your gaze, but the gaze of our friends here in this community that by being a part of in town, that we would see a truer version of ourselves, that we would see parts of ourselves that we didn't know existed and parts that perhaps we were scared to look at, but with the solidarity of this community, we can perhaps begin to unearth. Father, I pray that you would continue to walk through us through a time that is uncertain, a time that is uh, still threatened by the virus, that our jobs still feel on edge and uncertain, and a time as a church that we move into the future with a lot of unanswered questions. I pray that you would be with us, and you would give us your comfort, you would give us your calm, you would give us your direction. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.